This is only a win-win situation. If, if it's helpful, then you'll be pleased you came. If it's not, then you'll be thankful for Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all positive. So let me start with a few questions. How do you feel about prayer? Do you pray? Do you think you pray enough? Do you know what to pray when you do? Could you say that you enjoy praying? Is prayer a duty or is it a privilege? Now, when I was working in business, I had a conversation with a senior man at the company that has stayed with me. He'd been a a, a very senior guy at Price Waterhouse, but he'd lost most of his wealth through other people's financial mismanagement. But he wasn't bitter about it. In fact, God had used his humbling circumstances to lead him to faith in Jesus, and he'd become a Christian. And he had this transparent, simple, humble faith. He was in his 70s. I remember on one occasion, he looked me in the eye and said, do you pray? He was very posh. I said, yes. How much? And I squirmed a bit. I kind of went, um, 15 minutes a day? And he paused. And he said, well, I hope it's good quality. (laughs) Now, he evidently didn't think much of my prayer life. And to be honest, neither did I. That statistic of 15 minutes was a guess. Probably rounded up. (laughs) I found it so hard to pray. My life was so busy. We had two young children. I had a long commute to central London. I had a busy job, an active church life. And added to that, I was an elder in the church. So how could I possibly find time to pray (laughs) as well as that? Now, there were times when I found it so hard to pray that I would rather floss. (laughs) Now, is that healthy for a Christian? Healthy? You know it isn't. A healthy prayer life is essential. Actually, a healthy prayer life is essential for a healthy life. Let me try and prove that to you with a handful of Bible texts. Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him. Do you feel close to God? Well, do you pray? James 4. You do not have because you do not ask God. Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Are you asking, seeking, knocking? Luke 18, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? You want justice? Well, do you ask for it? Luke, uh, 1 Peter, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. But if you don't pray, how can you cast your anxiety on it? You see, just those five verses, there are dozens more. You see how a healthy prayer life is essential to a healthy life. A life experiencing God's presence and God's provision, God's protection. Now, Christians here, do you agree then that a prayer is not just important, but crucial? Yes, I think you probably say, most Christians say yes. But most of us struggle to pray, and we find it harder and harder to fit it in. We wanted to pray, but somebody invented smartphones. And every spare moment is spent looking at a screen. Tablets, the internet. And I know 
that just saying, yes, prayer is important, is not going to change anyone's life today or tomorrow. And change is the goal of preaching. So listen, I am not trying to put a guilt trip onto you about prayer. Not because I don't enjoy making people feel guilty. I do, as much as the next man. But because guilt is not going to help you change. What we need today is not feeling guilty. We need to feel excited. We need to feel excited. We need a thrilling glimpse of what it means to call God Father. And we need a thrilling glimpse of what it costs to sign our adoption papers. So maybe you could even pray now in your head that that will happen. That we'll have that thrilling glimpse in the next 20 minutes or so. I want to warm your hearts with this simple thought. The basis of prayer is that we approach God as children to a good father. The basis of prayer, we come to God as children approaching a good father. And all our problems with prayer come about because we don't get that. We fail to do it. And that's why Jesus, when he teaches his followers how to pray, he starts them off with these two words, our father. So let's read the passage, Matthew chapter 6. And we'll read from verse 5. Now when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of God. Now, this section that we just read is in the middle of something often called the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew, Jesus goes up on a mountainside and sits down and begins to teach, and his disciples come to him. And sitting down is the authoritative position or posture of a rabbi who's going to teach. It it seems a bit odd to us. Normally you're sitting and this preacher's standing. But sitting down, he's giving us authoritative word. And Matthew's gospel all the way through is depicting Jesus as the new Israel. The fulfilment of everything that Israel ought to have been. So Jesus gets cast out into the wilderness for 40 days, just as Israel was sent out into the wilderness for 40 years. And Jesus passes the test and is faithful to God where Israel failed. And Jesus here goes up a mountain and he proclaims God's law, just as Moses went up a mountain and taught, received God's law and came down with it, enshrined on those two tablets, the Ten Commandments. Now this sermon that Jesus preaches here, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is a really a manifesto for a whole new society. It's a kind of revolution, countercultural revolution. It is Jesus giving the instructions for a whole new civilization. He's telling his followers how to be God's city within the city of Liverpool. 
how to be God's city within the Wirral. Within it, but totally different from it. A whole new kind of people. It's fantastic. And he's spelling out these kingdom values that are going to grip and shape and form his people, his true followers. And in the middle of this sermon, there's this section here on certain religious practices. Giving, praying and fasting. And Jesus isn't against giving, praying and fasting. But he redefines it in line with his own kingdom values. He says, here's how you should give. Here's how you should pray. Here's how you should fast. Out of love for God, not out of love for an audience. And so this teaching on prayer is in the middle of that big context of Matthew and the sermon. And I'm going to say today there are three ways to pray. Three ways to pray. And the first two are bad ways. The first one is prayer. As I think, I'm not used to these things at all. It keeps falling off me. Sorry. Prayer as, is it coming up? Pious self-promotion. Pious self-promotion. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by everyone. And Jesus says they've received their reward in full. Now in the Jewish world of Jesus' day, public prayers were led by a male member of the synagogue who would stand and lead the congregation in prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with that practice. But a man could easily give in to the temptation to sort of pray up in front of the crowd. He could become very aware of the people listening and want to impress them and want them to think well of him. A parishioner at a Boston church was once heard to describe an elaborate prayer as the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. (laughs) Praying with a certain kind of tone, certain jargon words thrown in, a lot of Bible, certain kind of spirit of praying. These things can all become tools through which we try and make other people think well of us. <coughs> it can even be a way of competing. You ever heard people praying, it's almost like there's a contest, so who's going to do the best prayer? Now, years ago, we, we had this great preacher who's very famous in, in the Christian world called Dick Lucas, wonderful guy. He's a pastor in the middle of London. He came to our church out in Chessington. And he came to the midweek meeting and he came to speak. And we were all praying. And I'll tell you what, I prayed that evening for his approval. I prayed this prayer and I really wanted to hear the evangelical grunt. I wanted to hear him go, hmm. And I think he did. Once, maybe. Maybe just clearing his throat. Jesus would say, well, you had your reward in full. You prayed to Dick Lucas. (laughs) Now, another thing that happened in the Jewish world was a public call to prayer. At the time of the afternoon sacrifice, trumpets were blown, and everyone was supposed to put down tools and pray. Right where they were, in the shop, put down the thing and stop what they're doing, praying. But just think of the opportunity for showing off that that created Standing on a street corner, looking really spiritual, you know, showing off. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? He's saying, he's really getting at people who love to pray to be seen by others. He says they've had their reward already. In other words, if they wanted praise from people, they got it. But it doesn't mean anything to God. It's all about motive. Why are you praying? 
Now, we shouldn't be too hard on the Jews of Jesus' day until we've had a good hard look at ourselves, should we? Everyone who's had the chance to speak in public is faced with this temptation to do it to be seen by others. Everybody who's led a meeting, everybody who's prayed a meeting, everybody who's played a guitar, played a drum, sung, anybody who's done anything in public has this challenge to do it to be seen by others. But today we're particularly thinking about prayer. So let me ask you, do you ever pray in a showy manner? Do you ever pray to show off how spiritual you are? Do you ever pray prayers that are really a lecture? You know, it sounds like a prayer, but actually you're telling everyone else what they should think and how they should believe. Sometimes people take prayer as an opportunity to set things straight. Do you ever pray prayers that are really a power play, a way of exerting authority over others? Do you pray prayers that are just all about you? Such prayers are usually about your feelings and your experience, and they're often long and boring. Now, here's an awkward question. Right? Do you pray more frequently and fervently when you're alone with God or when you're in public? Do you love the secret place of prayer? Or is your public praying really where it's at? There's hardly anything backing it up. Now, if the answer is, I'm praying more in public than in private, then really we too are hypocrites. We need to stop praying to get other people's approval and start praying to our Father. So that's the first way to pray, and not recommended, by the way. First way to pray is prayer as pious self-promotion. And the second way to pray is prayer as anxious manipulation. Here's Jesus again, verse 7. When you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Now, the second group of people in Jesus' sights here are the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Now, these were people who had many gods. They had local gods, family gods, town gods, national gods, and sort of big gods in the background. Gods all over the place. I went to India about three years ago. I think they had, someone told me they had 300 million gods. Right? Now, when they're praying, they often use very elaborate prayer formulae. Because sometimes they felt they had to name all the gods so you didn't miss anyone out. Because you might miss out on the blessings. Right? Now, there's, there's a, a, an anxious kind of praying. Have I remembered everyone? It's like a Christmas card list. And sometimes also these pagans, the, the non-Jews, would pray with lots of repetition saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's kind of an underlying um, belief that prayer is a bit like fruit. You know, you've got to have five a day. The more you have, the better it is for you. Spiritual equivalent of five a day. And Jesus is saying, you know, the, the basis of that prayer is completely wrong. These people are anxious. They're uncertain of whether the gods are going to hear them. They actually see prayer as jumping through hoops. You know, there's a... Hold it there, the dog can jump through. Hold it there, can you get through now? And these people are actually trying to manipulate God or the gods, but they're not sure if anyone is listening. Now the classic example of this in the Old Testament is Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal. Baal was an idol, one of the gods of the Canaanites. And he had these 450 prophets working for him. And Elijah challenged them to a prayer showdown. 
And they called out from morning to noon and nobody answered. And then they actually cut themselves until blood ran out and they raved. But nobody answered. And then Elijah stepped up, spoke a simple prayer and God answered with fire from heaven. It's a stunning scene. And it shows us everything about prayer. Don't think you'd be heard because of many words and working yourself up into a ladder. But hang on a minute here. Is Jesus contradicting himself? Because in Luke 18, he says, we should always pray and never give up. And he told the story of a persistent widow. This widow was trying to get justice from an unjust judge. The judge could not be bothered. But the widow kept on nagging him morning, noon and night until eventually she wore him down. And the judge caved in and he said, even though I don't fear God or care about man, I will give her justice so she won't wear me out with her coming. And Jesus commends the persistent widow and he says, shouldn't you pray all the more confidently because you have a heavenly father who cares for you? So is Jesus contradicting himself? On the one hand, he says, pray, 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 like the persistent widow. On the other hand, don't think you've heard because of your many words. Does Jesus think all prayers should be really short? No. Jesus preaches with certain relationships in view. In Luke 18, he's concerned about this, our tendency to give up praying when it doesn't work fast. In Matthew 6, he's concerned about the attitude of our hearts. Do we babble on with lots of words, thinking that God will only listen if we can get enough word count? I remember a young mum telling me that she used to pray by the cot of a baby, of her newborn. And she would pray, and she believed that if she prayed with tears, God would be more likely to answer and save the child. So she used to pray by the cot, working up a load of tears. And I think that's the same thing as this. Prayer, kind of trying to, trying to manipulate God, not sure he's really going to care and answer. You end up saying things, and such prayer actually often becomes mindless. You end up reciting things that you're not even thinking about, just going through the motions. And you know, the most ironic thing about this, which prayer in the history of the church has been used most mindlessly? Which one? It's the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer that people say without thinking. I was invited to lunch by a Catholic group called Opus Dei. They were in, um, what was that film? Tom Hanks. What was it called? Da Vinci Code, all about Opus Dei. Nobody tried to assassinate me while I was having lunch with them. They've got this place in Manchester. All old blokes living in this place, fish and chips on Friday. So I went, and then they were very sweet guys. And then they said, would you come? I think they said we have to pay a visit. And I thought, they can't all be going to the loo at the same time. They had a little chapel. So we had to pay a visit. And this was just, it is after every meal. They went in, and they lit some candles or something. I was just sitting there thinking, what are they going to do now? And then they said the Lord's Prayer, and they said it again. And they said something else, Hail Mary, and they said it again. And you know what? By the end, that Lord's Prayer was being said so fast, you could hardly understand a word of it. It's just been repeated mindlessly. Anything that you do with, just by habit is suspect, really. Because prayer is not a formula. It's a relationship. It's not a formula, it's a relationship. God, Jesus says, the Father knows what, what, what you want, even before you ask him. So why bother asking? Because prayer is good for us. Prayer is actually an act of worship. 
It's reminding us of who we are and who God is and that we depend on him for everything. And it's essential then for a healthy life. So if we're not supposed to pray like hypocrites, pious self-promotion, or as anxious manipulation, you got there before me. Thirdly, prayer, this is how we're supposed to pray, praying as a confident child. Confident child. And I want to spend this remainder of our time on just two words. Our Father. So Jesus says you start your prayer. Our Father. Now firstly, what does Father mean? This might come up. Yes. Next one. By the way, I've got our church logo on here. A little bit of promotion if anyone's moving to Manchester. I'll take your names at the end of the meeting. Um, our Father. You've got the same logo. Oh, no. Right. Well, it's a great logo. Um, now, as soon as we say approach God as Father, we've got a problem, haven't we? Because we've got baggage. We all have fathers, and none of them are perfect. Some of our fathers were awful. Some, I'm sure some of your fathers were awful. Some of you, some of you don't even, didn't know your father. So we tend to sort of import a bit of our experience of father into this word. And that can bring a lot of negativity. One friend of mine said, I tend to think of God as being like my father. A short, angry Scottish man with red hair. (laughs) And in our culture, I dare say there's lots of positive vibes about mothers. But we are a bit more ambivalent about fathers, aren't we? Fathers, they're either stupid or evil. Take your pick. But if you compare worldly fathers without heavenly father you see an astonishing contrast your earthly father may have been impatient and bad tempered he may have been a poor communicator he may have been a harsh father he may have been weak he may have been unreliable you just couldn't count on him he may have been absent but look at your heavenly father these are things that the bible says about god god is slow to anger and abounding in mercy God doesn't rush into a fit and get cross at the drop of a hat. He is slow to anger. He is patient. To him, a thousand years is like a day. He's so patient. He's not impatient. God is not a poor communicator. He speaks. He is the God who speaks. And this is something very distinctive about our faith. We're people of the book. You have a massive great book in your hands. 66 books. It's a library. God's speaking to us. The speaking God. Is God harsh? The Bible says he is compassionate, tender-hearted. It says of Jesus that he would not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smouldering wick. He's so gentle. Is he weak? Along with his gentleness, he's strong. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. The Bible says God is our rock. And our fortress and ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. He is absolutely reliable and strong. Is he absent? He's ever-present. He's always with you. There's never been a moment of your life, whether you were awake or asleep, when God was not present with you, watching over you. Oh Lord, you've searched me. And you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You're familiar with all my ways. You discern my going out, my lying down. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. What a father he is. Now, this is what Jesus is calling to mind when he says, approach God as our father. It's this kind of father. That's what father means. Slow to anger, speaking, compassionate, rock and strength, unchangeable, ever-present. That's what Father meant. Can we go on to the next slide? Now, why does Father stun people? Maybe the next one. Why Father stunned? When Jesus' followers heard this teaching on prayer, it's quite likely that their jaws dropped a few inches. Because they'd not heard anyone pray quite like this before. It was so immediate and so warm and so intimate. Because the Jews of their day were... Great praying people, they're more likely to use terms of deep respect and reverence for God and talk about him as the sovereign Lord, the king of the universe. And that's what they knew about God. He was great and awesome and maybe somewhat distant. They knew that God was the great creator, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who spoke everything into being. They knew of God as the great missionary, the promise to Abraham that he would bless the whole world through Abraham's seed. And God's covenant with Israel to make them his people a light to the nations. They knew God was the great redeemer. He rescued the people of Israel from slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They thought of God as the great warrior. He fought for them. He defeated their enemies. He swallowed up Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. He destroyed the oppressor. They thought of God as the great king. He gave them a land and a law to live by and ruled over them. The creator, the missionary, the redeemer, the warrior, the king. But now Jesus is not saying we don't need to be reverent to that God anymore. But he's underlining something about prayer that those Jewish people had never really thought about much. And it's simply stunning. It's this, you know that great, mighty, awesome, incredible God. That God is now your father. Wow. And he chooses this very intimate word. The underlying word is probably Abba, which was an Aramaic word that was more intimate than the word father, but not quite as informal as daddy. Maybe dad. In other words, Jesus Christ is saying that you can relate to God as dad, a good dad. Now, how can that be the case for broken and lost and filthy sinners? It's because Jesus related to God as Father that we can. Now clearly, our relationship with God as Father is quite different from Jesus' relationship with God. Jesus is the unique, eternal Son. He's one of the three persons of the triunity or trinity that makes up God. And throughout all eternity, since before the beginning of time, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were together, united, supremely happy. Together they made the world. Together they will remake the world. So saying that we have become sons of God is not the same thing, the exact same relationship that Jesus enjoyed. But because Jesus is the son, and he has a special relationship with the father, he can offer us adoption as sons. And the Bible talks about sons because in the ancient world, sons inherit. So because Jesus has this warm Intimate, wonderful, undisturbed relationship with the Father. All the sons can as well. 
That's why Father stunned his first hearers. But I want to close by thinking with you, just for a couple of minutes, about what it costs to sign our adoption papers. How Father happened. How did Jesus grant us the privilege to call God Father? I just talked a moment ago about God's nature. He's tri-unity, trinity of three persons. And I tried to say a bit about, give a kind of glimpse into the joy of God's being. He's always been harmonious throughout all of time. And always a happy communion of Father, Son and Holy Spirit together. But you know, there was a time when that harmony was broken. When he was nailed to the cross, Jesus Christ suffered in ways that are beyond our imagination. Now, the physical agony, we can imagine, was extreme. The bones put out of joint by the dashing of the cross into its socket. The pain of the massive nails being pin, pinning his arms and legs to the cross. The struggling for every breath. Yes, the shame, too, being strung up naked for all to see. The cross was a way of destroying someone's reputation forever. There's no dignity on the cross, no privacy. You were utterly exposed and utterly shamed. It was, a, it was a, a death that was reserved for the worst of criminals and would never be, uh, a Roman citizen would never be killed on a cross. It's too far beneath them. In fact, the word cross was, was so offensive that polite Roman middle class families told their children not to say it. Swear word, even to say cross. But you know what? That was true. That pain and shame was true for everyone who was crucified. And the Romans crucified hundreds of men. Jesus' agony was on another level altogether. His real agony, even beyond the crucifixion, was what was going on in his great spirit, his soul. Because what our Saviour suffered in his body was nothing compared to what he suffered in his soul. Because on the cross, Jesus was ripped apart from the Father. He endured hell. Now, the essence of hell is separation from God. And that is what Jesus Christ endured. It was, Isaiah says, the Lord's will to crush him. What a word. God took all the punishment and the shame and the guilt due to our sin, the sin of millions and millions of people, and he loaded it onto Jesus Christ It was as if all of hell and wrath of God was put into a cup and Jesus drained it down to the dregs. So there was nothing left of all the pangs and miseries of hell for his people ever to endure. That was the secret suffering of Jesus Christ. We can never know what it cost him. He was torn apart from the Father who had loved him for all eternity. The creation itself could barely look on. The sun couldn't look on. It went dark for three hours. The earth couldn't stand it. There was an earthquake. The curtain of the temple that was ripped from top to bottom, signalling it was now safe for sinful human beings to stand in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed. Jesus Christ became the ultimate orphan. The ultimate orphan. He cried out, words that you know, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Now notice the distance in that language. What does he usually call God? Father. Not on the cross. 
Now he calls, falls back to calling him God. Because at that moment, he no longer experiences God as father. He experiences abandonment. He was disowned, disgraced, shut out in the darkness. It was the will of the father to crush him. Now let's not imagine for one moment that God the father is somehow the bad guy in all of this. We cannot imagine the anguish in his great heart to punish Jesus. The just for the unjust. To bring us to God. But this was a plan that they had devised before time began. That the son would willingly lay down his life. The strong laying down his life for the weak. To rescue a people. A people so vast and great that you and I could not count them. A people from every tribe and language and nation. United under one father. Now that is how we get to call God father. Jesus Christ lost his father. So that you could gain. Jesus Christ lost his father. So that you could gain him. And what a father he is. So. Let me encourage you. To start praying. Like that. Not long prayers. Not. Certainly not eloquent prayers. Unless you're just naturally eloquent. But to make the space in your head. To make the space in your life. In the little corners. In the morning. In the evening. Before meals. On the bus. Changing a nappy, as you're about to go to sleep, as you wake up worried, to pray. But to start your prayers with these two words, our Father. And then pause, and then just think about who it is you're talking to, and what it costs to sign your adoption papers. And then when you've done that, when you've thought about that, think about having done all of that to bring you into his family, how delighted God is to hear you pick up the phone. And talk to him. So will you pray? Our Father. Shall we pray together? Our Father, you are in heaven. We're here on earth. We uh, live these lives are so often very mundane. We go from day to day. We don't see you. We don't see Jesus. Often we struggle with doubts and difficulties and temptation. Yet we thank you for times such as this, and we thank you for this moment now, this day, that you are here with us by your Spirit, reminding us of our sonship, our adoption, reminding us of what you've done to bring us to Jesus, and calling us once again to close fellowship with you, because that's what you want for your glory and for our good. So we thank you and praise you with all our hearts. And pray, continue with us for the rest of the day. Amen. Amen. Amen.